0: Hello and welcome to episode three of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell-Staten. I'm an evolutionary biologist and National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow. I'm joined in the lab once again by my co-host and all-around comic book head, Arian Darby. Arian's a marketing manager at Warner Brothers Entertainment Group, home to all your favorite DC comic book superheroes. In this episode, we discuss the comic book Multiverse and explore how evolution might play out across an infinite number of parallel worlds. I interview Dr. Jonathan Lossos, an evolutionary biologist and author of Improbable Destinies, Fate, Chance, and the Future of Evolution. We sit down and chat a bit about how fate and chance shape the world around us. We've got a great episode ahead, so sit back and enjoy, because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So recently, I uh, actually just got back from a trip to Los Angeles, uh, where Arian lives, and uh, we met up for a bit, hung out, caught up. Uh, it's the first time we've caught up since, oh, man, for like a couple of years.
1: A couple of years now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I recently, I realized when we were hanging out, you were, you were uh, reading uh, some interesting comic books, uh, including, uh, was it Multiversity?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a book by uh, Grant Morrison along with a couple of contributing artists, I believe. And then uh, I sort of took a dive back into a classic Infinite Crisis uh, with Jeff Johns and team over at DC. And I tell you, man, the multiverse is a fascinating place. Yeah. So what
0: do what are we talking about when we're talking about the
1: uh, the like
0: the DC multiverse or the Marvel multiverse? Uh, what do, what are we talking about?
1: well to define it simply i'd describe a multiverse as being endless parallel worlds occupying the same space but essentially vibrating at different frequencies and so it's something that most of the characters in the universes aren't aware of Uh, but in certain instances uh, and under certain circumstances they can become aware of it and i think with dc in particular We've noticed over the course of history, it's often been the Flash characters, the characters in the the, fa- the Flash family lineup. So with the Flashes, you're talking about being able to break down the space-time continuum. They're moving so much faster than the speed of sound or light, and these characters are actually able to essentially transcend the vibrational border uh, of the worlds and cross over and meet each other on their new worlds, in a sense. Okay,
0: so, so- you... So in this case, you have an infinite number of parallel worlds. They are occupying the same space, but they're vibrating at slightly different frequencies, so they never meet each other. But, right. But because the Flash is, is so fast, he can, he can actually change the way that he vibrates in such a way that he can cross over from, from one,
1: one world to, to another. Yeah, and when you're talking about the earlier iterations of the character, he's often just done it by accident. Uh, it's, it's not something that <laughs> he's purposely tried to uh, accomplish, but he's you know he's running along at time-bending speed like we all do occasionally on a Sunday, and then bam, you know he pops over to the next dimension, uh, in a sense, into this parallel world, uh, and he starts to notice that things are a little bit different, and I think that's the, the key there. Um, some of the degrees of differentiation vary but when you find yourself on a new earth uh you know maybe instead of aquaman as the hero you have aqua woman or you know the background stories of the characters change maybe batman's parents are villains or superman is african-american or on one planet there might be an evil justice league and you have a character traditionally known as a villain like lex Luthor, uh teaming up with other now heroes fighting against the justice league and so you have these little quirky permutations over you know the infinite amount of you know possibilities that could occur uh that you'll find on these planets and these other earths uh, as dc likes to kind of characterize them and it leads to new storytelling opportunities and, like, some really crazy crossover adventures.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. So th- this, and, so my understanding is that this idea of, like, the DC multiverse specifically uh, actually actually started with the Flash. What's was it? Uh, Flash number 123, the classic Flash of two worlds. Uh, sort of, that's a, it's like old school from 1961. It was written by uh, Gardner Fox and illustrated by uh, Carmine Infantino, Um this was like the first look that we get at at the DC multiverse. Uh, you know, so we get Barry Allen, who is the modern day version of of Flash, and he meets up with um, uh, Jay Garrick, who's what we call the the Golden Age Flash. He was actually the the uh, the first flash that was written about the original flash and uh but when they meet up in this sort of classic flash of two worlds it's not a past meets present sort of thing but it's uh it's this idea of the parallel universes so barry allen occupies earth one jay garrick occupies earth two then barry allen again as a mistake you know, vibrates at a slightly different frequency and pops into earth too. And he's really confused. And it's like, where are all the people I know and all the cities that I know? What is happening? Where am I? And in running around, he, he finally meets, uh, Jay Garrick. And then they team up and go on all sorts of, uh, all sorts of adventures. Uh, so this original concept eventually grew to be, uh, to become the multiverse,
1: Yeah, it's very cool, and and with DC, you kind of see these big touch points over the course of decades. Um, There's also a book called Crisis on Infinite Earth, or Earths rather, uh, that I think was put together by Marv Wolfman and George Perez and Jerry Ordway, uh, and that sort of led into Infinite Crisis, which came out around 2005-2006. So back in the 80s, after that uh, first Flash uh, sort of incident with uh, a multiversity uh, kind of occurring within the DC world. You, you jump forward from the 60s to the 80s, and you have this big cataclysmic event, which is essentially sucking in all of the known superhero uh, family uh, from DC's roster at that time to handle a cataclysmic, multi-dimensional, spanning, world-ending uh, crisis. It's okay. so, like <laughs> all, the, all the
0: heroes from from all the different parallel universes
1: team up to fight this one bad guy. Right. Essentially, yes. Um, And, you know, creatively, obviously, it gives you a chance to just do these epic pieces from an artwork and storytelling perspective. And, you know, from just a continuity perspective in terms of a creative team, it allows you to Essentially, reset the button on a world and on a creative vision, and maybe take things in a different direction. And, and so, you got to give a hats off to the teams that come together to do this because it's essentially not the work of just one writer, but you're often involving writers of multiple books to come in and take part of the storyline and add their own perspective to it to make sure that everything kind of lines up and makes sense before you move forward together in a new direction. Uh, and at the end of the day, although it's kind of, you know, these stories about. Space, time, continuum, and all of the science and, and multi-dimensionality. Uh, a lot of a lot of it just comes down to story-driven, character-based decisions. The emotions tied to uh, the, the the stories that the characters are kind of living at the time, how they're uh, behaving and interacting with each other, the conflicts between them, um, and, and just kind of the general human element of it uh, that that makes the stories uh, so compelling.
0: Yeah. So it seems like this the multiverse is. It's kind of an, an excuse for for different comic book writers to to have some artistic freedom to tell a story in a in a slightly different way or or take an original like make an original version of of some classic character. Uh, it give, gives them a little a little bit of artistic freedom. But then when it gets out of hand, they they collapse it all with some some world's ending event like Infinite Crisis and then start all over again.
1: Yeah, I mean you know it's this cataclysmic tentpole event where you know potentially thousands of universes are destroyed some really key characters uh you know are kind of wiped out uh and it's emotional it's it's really kind of compelling they don't pull any punches in this um i don't want to give any spoilers away but if you do have a chance to read crisis on infinite earths or the infinite crisis um you know some big names are, are just kind of wiped out and you know, creatively speaking, it's it's almost like an, a, an anima, It uh, lets you clear up <laughs> old stories and make way for some new tales. Uh, and, and so, it really gives you a, a clear path to move forward on, um, but also something for fans to really feel kind of the gravitas. Because after a while, when you get into the sense of continuity and some of these books that have been running on for decades, uh, where you're into issue number 500 or 600, and you know, different creative teams kind of move on or off or what have you. But sometimes you needed something to really shake things up uh, and get things moving again. And so opportunities to play with ideas around uh, multiverses are are pretty compelling. Yeah.
0: And now we're starting to see this sort of even outside of the actual graphic novels
1: with the new Flash TV series, um, you know, which depicts Barry Allen. Yeah, that, that story, that series has been running for a while now and going pretty strong. It's got a great cast. And I, I, you know, our listeners can maybe correct us if we're wrong in the show notes or on online on social media, but I think it's really the first mainstream example we've seen of the idea of a multiverse being presented to kind of a general audience because it, it, it can get a little confusing. Um, but again, very much like what we talked about earlier, where the Flash as a character uh, or a subset of uh, a family of characters that have um, worn the costume and like kind of held the moniker in their day or in their time uh, is the one that sort of kicked this off and uh, you know in the instance of the very first season you ultimately find out that the reverse flash uh, in the TV show uh, Eobard Thawne Uh, actually kills one of the central characters, Dr. Wells, uh, and assumes his identity on Flash's Earth, Barry Allen's Earth, Earth One, befriends him, mentors him, but is ultimately looking to destroy him. Uh, And we find out that he essentially has come, you know, across space-time to wipe out his ultimate nemesis. And then when we move into a future season, uh, you actually get a chance to meet a Dr. Harrison Wells, I believe, from Earth 2, Who's um, you know, a little bit prickly, but certainly not a super villain by any means, and he's just out to take care of his family, protect his daughter, uh, and do science stuff, right? Like and he, he ultimately
0: ends up becoming a, a very valuable
1: um, part of the of Flash's team.: Yeah, 100 um, percent. you know after the, the, the trust hurdle of you know seeing a guy with the same face that tried to kill you uh, not too long ago. Um, is past, however long that may take. Uh, He does definitely become a part of the the team and an integral part. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about some of the parallel universes and how the changes between the two of them could be drastic or minuscule um, you know that I- is almost kind of like it-, it takes you back to experiences in your own life where you know you're kind of traveling down pat one path and if you think back well what if I had gone right what would have happened mm-hmm. those are kind of the differences there between the universes because yeah. he's a scientist very much like the dr. Harrison Wells of earth one was a scientist but he just wasn't the one targeted to be attacked and killed and have his identity stolen. Uh, and it's almost almost like a glimpse of what would have happened if that other doctor, Harrison Wells, had made, might have lived.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's a
1: question that we, all,
0: you know, that we all have at some point. It's like, oh, I wonder what had happened if I had continued taking piano lessons or right. you know, <laughs> if I hadn't have quit the football team you know, or mm-hmm. wonder what would have happened if you know, I you know, never would have gotten into this one class you know, when i was in college you know that ended up being what i wanted to do for the rest of my life you know sort of thinking about these alternate versions of of our of our own
1: lives that are that are out that could be out there in parallel universes yeah and it's fascinating because you can so clearly kind of see especially you know the older you get the the different paths you could have taken and and you know you can kind of envision that and, it, and it's always not too late either I, I think on a personal note sometimes if there's something you ever want to revisit um, that you did in your past, dig it back up again. Especially if, if you cared about it and you're passionate about it. I think you know maybe part of that is why we're we're talking here right now. I, yeah, I, I grew- loving comic books. Um, and I certainly didn't, you know, twenty some odd years ago say, you know, I'm gonna keep reading these things because one day when that podcast opportunity comes around with one of my really good friends, I'm on it. I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be ready.
0: <laughs> if, if only we had that sort of forethought. So when I was reading this flash of two worlds, there was, this was really, really interesting for me um, because there is this scene where, you know, after Barry sort of jumps from Earth One to Earth Two, he finds Jay Garrick and he's trying to explain, you know, what has happened and where he's coming from. And so I'm actually looking at it right now and there's this one panel uh, in the first issue So, this is flash 123. I'm just going to read directly from the panel. And he says, My theory is both Earths were created at the same time in two quite similar universes. They vibrate differently, which keeps them apart. Life, customs, even languages evolved on your Earth almost exactly as they did on my Earth. Destiny must have decreed that there be a flash on each Earth. Now, as an evolutionary biologist, this brings up some really, really interesting questions, right? So if we consider the multiverse at this infinite number of Earths on each of these Earths, right? If they were created at the same time, that means you have somewhere between three and a half and and four and a half billion years of evolution playing out independently on each one of these Earths. So how likely is it that we get such similar results, right? Not only do we get the same species popping up on each earth, but in some cases, we get the same individuals popping up on on each earth with slightly different variations. And it brings up this really interesting question of what are the roles of fate and chance in shaping the world that we live in? So I recently uh, took a trip back to my old stomping grounds uh, at Harvard, where I did my PhD. And I sat down with, uh, with my PhD advisor, uh, Jonathan Lossos. I actually gave him a copy of uh, the classic Flash of Two Worlds. And, uh, and he read it. And we, we had a bit of a chat about it um, from an evolutionary perspective. So let's start off by just getting a, a little bit of background on, on Jonathan and, and uh, how he got into what he does. How did you get into biology as a field? Well, like like most little boys, I was fascinated
2: by dinosaurs, and so when I was five years old, I had a basket full of plastic dinosaurs that I took to nursery school with me, and I was actually kind of legendary for my dinosaurs and my dinosaur knowledge, <laughs> and then as I got older, I became interested in living reptiles, and I had lizards as pets, and I actually convinced my mother that... I should be allowed to have a, a small alligator, something called a caiman from South America as a pet. And so I got them and they were nasty little creatures, but uh, but fascinating. And so the more as I grew up, the more I knew about reptiles, just the more fascinated I became. And so when I went to college, I thought, well, I'll study biology and see if I really continue to like it. And it just built and built and built. And so, so it really all goes back to dinosaurs. I've always been fascinated by, by animals and, and reptiles in particular. And so I've just the more I've learned, the more fascinated I've become. I study reptiles now. And when people meet me now, I'm 55, People, the few people still around who knew me when I was five, they say, oh, yes, of course that's what you're doing. It makes perfect sense But that i had about as linear a, uh, a career trajectory as anyone I know. And so tell me about your, your career now. Well, I'm a professor at Harvard University, and I'm also curator at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, curator of herpetology, which is the study of reptiles and amphibians. And so I study reptiles, how they evolve, how they adapt to local circumstances, how one ancestral species gives rise to many descendant species. And so I studied the evolutionary diversification of reptiles, particularly one type of reptile, a little lizard called an anole lizard, lizards in the genus Anolis that are found in Florida, throughout the Caribbean and throughout Central America and,
0: and much of South America. So understanding the role of fate and chance in shaping biodiversity is actually a central goal of evolutionary biology. It's fundamental to our understanding of what life is and how it came to be the way that it is. You know, but then again, also on a personal level, I think we all ask ourselves at some point, you know, why are we here? What is our purpose? And Fate and Chance actually, I think, plays a really important role in that conversation.
1: Yeah, totally. And, you know, just thinking about the broader comic book world, it, it's purveyant everywhere with every superhero origin story almost. Um, you look at a character like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman. They all have these tragic events happening uh, to them, uh, potentially by fate and their destinies are shaped by it. And so you constantly get into these, you know, discussions even within the comic books or uh, amongst friends or or what have you, where you take a look back at the origin story and think, well, what if with Peter Parker, his uncle had never tragically died? Uh, Would he have just been a scientist and gone on to maybe win the Nobel Prize and change the world in some other way? Uh, would Batman have just been a rich playboy philanthropist? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not even the philanthropist, but uh, just you know, a spoiled the, rich I, kid. Yeah, just a, just a spoiled rich kid with a butler uh, growing up, um, and, and you know, maybe a good heart because uh, you know is parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne were you know, fairly decent people in the community. Yeah. Uh, but he had just been a kind of a trust fund kid. Yeah.
0: So there's uh, this, this, it seems like there's this back and forth, you know, where, you know, there's this, you know, this tragic beginning that leads to, you know, a really remarkable result, which is this human who's bestowed or this person who is bestowed with the powers and want to, save many people right but it seems like they're constantly in this back and forth between you know this trade-off between having this tragic thing in their life lead to them being able to do all this good versus them wanting that ideal life back right wanting their parents to not have died you know, and to just live a normal life but in the meantime how many people would then have died that they would have saved if they had actually become become heroes
1: right yeah uh, and you, you see it even in the real world where a lot of our you know most famous business icons sometimes have a really tragic background and it inspires them to kind of press forward uh and really make some sweeping changes for the betterment of society um and so you know i i think that if you're talking and, and kind of getting to the more science end of it and i'm sure we'll get there but it's it's just like is this a nature versus a nurture thing? And, you know, are are these heroes, you know, inextricably linked by their circumstances to, like, is their success essentially inextricably linked to their circumstances where if they didn't have such a hardship, they wouldn't have, you know, like a diamond under pressure evolved into what they became uh, for the world. Uh, You don't really know because you can't, to a certain degree, turn back the clock in comic books. You kind of can, uh, but you know there's some stories that explore the wood if angles and kind of give you a different vantage point. But when you're talking about the continuity of the regular storylines, you just accept that tragedy X happened to hero Y. This is part of what shaped their destiny to move forward and become the hero we know today. Uh, but wouldn't it be interesting if you could kind of run some experiments like that and figure out, if, uh, you know, things might be different.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a really, really interesting question. So I, I asked Jonathan so a little bit about the history of, of this question, specifically in the field of evolution. You know, this history of, of asking how fate and chance intertwine to shape the world that we live in. Uh, so let's hear what he had to say about that. So you read The Flash. Classic flash. flash of Two Worlds. I did. what did you think of the story? That's a
2: great story.
0: Yeah, uh, twists and turns. I laughed. I cried. <laughs> it was. I had me on the edge of my seat. Yeah. Um, so we have this this question that comes up right, for me as an evolutionary biologist a question I know that you think a lot about. So we have this classic Flash of Two Worlds where you know Barry Allen visits a parallel Earth, meets Jay Garrick, and they go off on these adventures. Now, for me, reading this story this brings up the question of the role of fate and chance in determining evolutionary trajectories. All right, so if we look at, you know, Barry Allen's world and we look at Jay Garrick's world, they're very similar worlds, right? So if we consider four and a half three and a half to four and a half billion years of evolution, they've resulted in the same species. And In some cases, you know, if we look across the DC multiverse, they've resulted in the same individuals, you know, represented in in different universes. Uh, And I know that this is a classic question in in evolutionary biology, and I was wondering when and how did biologists start thinking about the sort of the roles of fate and chance in shaping patterns of evolution?
2: Well, this is a a very old question in in various permutations, goes back deep into the history of evolutionary biology and the history of science itself. How fated was the world to be as it is? How deterministic versus what is the role of chance events and what we call contingency, happenstance? Could life have gone a very different different route? Uh, In biology, probably the most important time for the development of these ideas was back in the 1930s and 1940s where people were debating the importance of of natural selection in driving evolutionary change, versus the importance of random processes, random mutations, and the changes that accumulate through time in a population just due to, to happenstance, to random events. And on the one hand, there was one school of thought that said natural selection is all powerful, that every every feature we see in an organism, these the stripes on the on the shell of a snail, the spots on a on a leopard, everything are the result of natural selection adapting a species to where it lives. On the other hand, there were some who argued that a lot of the differences we see among species are just random, that a mutation happened to occur in one population and not another, and for just by chance that mutation became established in the population, and so that the differences between species might have no adaptive significance. And so the argument was to what extent are the differences we see between populations the result of natural selection versus chance processes. And so that's been a long-running debate in evolutionary biology and and it doesn't go away. Just when the pendulum swings one way, the new data send it back the other. Probably the most influential idea, at least in the last few decades on this, has to do with the famous uh, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, who basically had a thought experiment. He said, suppose that we could go back in time and start again, that we could, his his metaphor was we could replay the tape of life, and start again from the same circumstances, would we get the same outcome? And his arg- his argument was that no, we wouldn't, because there are just random events that occur that might send life in a very different direction. The occurrence of one mutation instead of another, or just a, a gust of wind, a, a, a hurricane, a, a chance event causing one animal to survive another and not another one might change the evolutionary trajectory so that the outcome might be very different. And so his argument was, if you replay the tape of life, you'd get a very different outcome. And hitting us where it really hurts most, he said, replay the tape a million times you'd never get humans again. Hmm. That we are just the lucky fluke outcome of the particular events that happened in the past that led to humans evolving. And that if certain events hadn't happened in the past, we would not be here today. And so that uh, so that was a very influential argument that Gould made in a, in a fabulous book called Wonderful Life. And But that book was published. There were actually no data at the time. No one was testing the idea of how repeatable or predictable evolution is and but in the in the almost 30 years since that book has been published many people have tried to study that question to to actually ask how deterministic is evolution or how much does chance play a role
0: so it seems like our understanding of fate versus chance and shaping the world around us is actually still an ongoing debate both from a scientific standpoint and from a philosophical standpoint
1: So, yeah, I'd say that um, both science and philosophy have their work cut out for them in that regard because, uh, as Jonathan mentioned, there's still a lot of back and forth, and there's evidence on on both sides uh, kind of battling it out. But um, what's interesting in the comic book world is that, creatively speaking, uh, these guys, I guess, have the advantage of being able to start over whenever they want. And so if they want to explore the idea of a different angle of a character, they can find a new creative team to take that path. And so when you get into the idea of what's uh, known as continuity in the comic book world, that's essentially the creative vision of one particular team uh, in any given medium, uh, because there's continuity in the comic books across different titles that may be reflected upon the same character. Uh, or there's continuity across different mediums such as comic books and television and movies. And so when you take a look at the origin story of Batman from Christopher Nolan's world, Versus maybe the that was uh, you know, like Batman Begins
0: and yeah Batman Dark Begins Dark Knight Rises Dark
1: Knight Rises the Dark Knight essentially the Dark Knight trilogy uh, versus something like the animated series back in the nineties or you know even the original TV show back in it was like the sixties or seventies like Adam or West Adam West yeah and all of that so it's a completely different take on the character and a completely different creative vision yeah, so they have uh, free and,
0: range to. To actually
1: rewind the tape and and play it back again all of that (laughs) comes with its cost too because then you get into the classic you know nerd battles of oh this is the origin or this is the best story or you know it's (laughs) people you know are just kind of like oh I thought Peter Parker was this but like I just saw the movie and it's this and that happened and you know from a comic book perspective you just have to kind of accept the different variants and interpretations of a character and trust that creatively over the course of time, everyone's uh, kind of keeping the spirit alive of what the original essence was. So when we consider
0: the repeatability of evolution, this can have very important consequences for society and our everyday lives. For instance, when we think about infectious diseases, things like influenza or Ebola, when we administer vaccines to a population to rid ourselves of these diseases, we also give them a chance to adaptively respond to that vaccine this is what leads to the evolution of antibiotic resistant strains the same applies to pesticide resistant pests that eat millions of dollars of food crops every year but if that process of evolution is repeatable that means that it's predictable and if we can predict it we can implement plans that help us stay one step ahead of it in this evolutionary arms race and that one step can mean saving thousands of lives or feeding thousands more people.
1: Yeah, so essentially the uh, the comic book world just has it a little bit easier than the science and, and philosophy world. And the creators uh, at any time can just come together and essentially reboot the story and retell things. And so you'll often see, uh, with the concept of continuity to keep the story fresh and compelling especially for a modern audience uh creative teams will come together and say hey you know what we want to tell the origin stories of a character like spider-man again but for a modern setting and the modern time and we'll put our own spin on it and that can lead to a slightly different permutation of the path that the character travels down because of the introduction of new technologies and ideas and thoughts from the broader world that weren't necessarily available at the time of the original origin story. Uh, so that's why I think part of the reason why these characters are so endearing for so many generations over so long of a time period uh, is because they're constantly pumped with relevancy across different medium, whether it's the comics themselves or television, movies, the stories are constantly adapting to the times.
0: Yeah, so this idea of the multiverse essentially gives Gives an opportunity to to retell a classic story in a, in a modern framework and make it relevant to to particular goings on you know that are that are that are happening in the in the world around us um yeah absolutely yeah. multiverse is
1: like big re- reboot button
0: yeah exactly and i yeah i think in in that sense you know comic book writers actually have have it pretty easy in the sense that they can just they can actually just go back and and, and rewind things and, and start over and retell a, you know, retell a different story. Uh, but biologists, we have it a little bit harder because we just have this one world, right? I mean, you know. That we know of. that. Fair enough. That we know of. Um, you know, but, you know, within the bounds of our knowledge, we only have this one world, this one origin of, of life. So then how do we, you know, how do we actually go out and, and use what we have at hand to? to ask or to answer this question of of fate versus chance. Um, So when we go out into the real world, what does life actually tell us and how do scientists study this? Uh, So I asked Jonathan uh, a little bit about this. Uh, Let's hear what what he had to say. So Stephen Jay Gould poses this question of if we replay the tape of evolution, do we get the same result? And his argument is that no, there's a huge component of chance. What does the actual data tell us about this? So, when Gould proposed this idea, he
2: said, This is a thought experiment. We can't actually do this. But what we would like to do, if we could, would be to go to rewind the tape, to go back in time and let evolution start again. And of course, you can't really do that. However, there is another approach that scientists have suggested, and they say, Instead of going back in time, which we can't do, what if we replay the tape across space in different places and look at evolution occurring independently in in different places, but experiencing the same conditions. And so you're not going back to one environment and doing it again, but you're just doing it at the same time in multiple environments. And so the idea is look at species adapting to the same situation In different places and see if they evolve the same way and the argument is that that is like replaying the tape and that in fact is what my own research has done I study lizards that occur on islands in the Caribbean and in particular on the large islands of the Caribbean what we call the Greater Antilles that's Cuba Hispaniola Puerto Rico and Jamaica the lizards I study the Anolis lizards have independently colonized each one of those islands. And on each one of these islands they've diversified from one ancestral species to a variety of different species adapted to using different parts
0: of the environment. So these are kind of like our parallel worlds. They're parallel worlds,
2: that's exactly right. Okay. They're they're parallel worlds and they're also in a sense replays of lizard evolution. Mm -hmm. We're replaying it four times on different islands. And so we can compare the outcome of that evolution on the four different islands and ask, have they evolved in the same way on each island? And it turns out that they mostly have. That there are, for example, on all four islands, there's a species that lives on little twigs and has very short legs that adapt them for moving carefully on narrow surfaces. And if you saw these lizards, you'd say, they're the same thing. They look very similar. But they're not. They've evolved independently on each island and there's another type on each island that lives up in the treetops in the canopy and they have very big toe pads and they're green in color to blend in with the leaves and again on all four islands there are very similar species but they're not closely related they've independently evolved to occupy that ecological niche and so the same thing is true of of many of the different types on the different on the these islands the same set of habitat specialists has evolved each time and so in these multiple universes of lizard evolution, the same outcome,
0: for the most part, has evolved in each place. So in that sense, what we're seeing in the flash of two worlds, right? If we have these two parallel worlds that have been evolving for um, for a really long period of time, apart and separate from each other, the fact that we get very similar results is not necessarily that surprising?
2: No, that we do see examples of this occurring, like the lizards, where evolving in very similar situations, the same outcome results. So yes, there there is certainly a precedent for this, and surely the comic book writers must
0: have been thinking of of these lizards when they wrote wrote their book. So Jonathan mentions this very interesting group of lizards, Enolis lizards, and this is a group that I spend a fair amount of my life working on as well. This group shows a remarkable level of repeatability in their evolution driven by natural selection. And this is a pattern that's commonly referred to as convergence. So natural selection has driven these species down a very specific trajectory over and over and over again to get the same result independently several times. But there are also other incredible examples of convergence in the natural world that show us how repeatable the process of evolution can be. So several bird species, like Darwin's finches of the Galapagos, have evolved similar beak shapes independently. Cichlid fish in the rift lakes of East Africa have evolved very similar body plans several times. Even across very distantly related species, if we consider the wings of bats and birds and even pterodactyls, they are remarkably similar despite evolving independently from one another. So not only can we go out and see this in nature, but we can bring small organisms like E. coli bacteria into the lab and literally create parallel worlds. So ongoing research by Richard Linsky's group at Michigan State is doing just that. They're looking at hundreds of generations of repeated evolution across tiny microcosms. So in combination studies of these natural experiments across islands and lakes as well as laboratory experiments using these tiny petri dish worlds we can gain a pretty in-depth understanding of how fate and chance shape evolution
1: yeah um you know listening to Jonathan I was hoping to hear that he uh, figured out how to transcend the vibrational border uh, to conduct experiments <laughs> on different earths but, i think science has still come up with a a pretty clever solution nevertheless we gotta work with um, what we got yeah we're working with what we got and uh, you know when i think about the story of infinite crisis there was a a character in there alexander luther um who was one of the original survivors from the crisis on infinite earth storyline back in the 80s uh and essentially went through so much trauma with his uh world being destroyed Uh, that his main goal in Infinite Crisis was to essentially recreate the multiverse so that he could cherry-pick from the best of all of the representations of Earths across the multiverse, the infinite selection and opportunity uh, of offerings, of heroes and people and talent, uh, and and cherry-pick from the best of them to recreate uh, the best earth possible and the perfect world for people to live on uh, so that there'd never be any more pain or, or, you know, needless death or, or, or what have you. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't get a, a, a super villain vibe from Jonathan or anything. So <laughs> I get strictly science uh, on his end and, and it's all good intentions, but uh, you know, sometimes in the, Superhero world, we uh, and in the comic book world, we see characters start out with the uh, the best intentions, but um, you know sometimes get thrown down the wrong path. Um, but it's fascinating to hear what science has kind of come up with to run its own experimentations and to sort of tackle this question of fate versus chance.
0: Yeah. So you you mentioned this, um, you know, you you mentioned Alexander Luthor sort of doing this tinkering to try to find you know, you know, to try to put together the optimal earth. And I don't know of anyone specifically who's who's actually doing this in the lab. But, you know, using some of, you know, using these experimental techniques, you know, where you recreate parallel Earth's, you know, in well recreate parallel universes in these Petri dishes. Um, you know, you can actually implement some really interesting experiments to try to find um, to try to understand how um, how organisms, you know, can come about the optimal solution for solving particular problems, right? So you introduce, uh, some, you know, new food source or you introduce, uh, some, uh, new predator or some limiting resource. And, you know, and then by looking at this independently across multiple Petri dishes, i.e. multiple universes, right? You can, you can see how predictable those, those solutions are yeah, you know, and, and sort of, when when you get the optimal solution and how many times you get the optimal solution that's cool yeah so on the flip side of things we also see some very intriguing examples of, of one-off events that have happened you know in the natural world so things have evolved that we never saw before and we have never seen since and I think these also uh, provide really interesting insight into into the process of evolution. So I asked Jonathan a little bit more about this. Uh, let's hear what he had to say. You have this this system of knolls that have done this this pattern of, of convergence, right? Where you get the same result playing out multiple times. Is is this a one off? Well, that's that's a very good question because one could.
2: One could also cite examples of the exact opposite, that when you look at species evolving in two different places, they don't look at all similar. So, for example, look at Australia and look at some of the crazy animals that have evolved there that don't look anything like animals anywhere else. Like the platypus. Like the duck-billed platypus, the world's greatest animal. (laughs) This is an animal that lives in streams, and it goes swimming, it it dives down to the bottom, and it roots around with its bill, like similar to a duck's bill, looking for crayfish and other invertebrates to eat. It's got very thick fur, it's got webbed feet, it's got a powerful tail. The males have poison glands on their hind legs. Well, there's no animal in the world anywhere that looks at all like a platypus, and yet the place that it lives, in streams eating crayfish, there are plenty of animals around the world, here in North America, in Europe, elsewhere, that live in the same habitat but they haven't evolved the same features. Or for another example, look at the kangaroo. The kangaroo is a grazing herbivore. It's sort of the equivalent of deer in North America, but it looks nothing like deer. Or the koala. There's no parallel with the koala. So in this case you could say that there are many animals in Australia that have adapted to the same situations found elsewhere but in very different ways. Hmm. Or can I give you an even more extreme example?
0: Oh, yeah, please.
2: New Zealand. So New Zealand broke off from Australia maybe 80 million years ago. And today, there are almost no mammals on New Zealand. The only mammals, there are a few species of bats and a few species of seals that haul up on the beaches. But other than that, there are no mammals. And so New Zealand is ruled by birds. And so they have evolved to be the predators, the herbivores, the grazers, and they don't look at all like, say, what you'd see on the plains of Africa or the mountains of the Andes. They have a completely different ecosystem unlike anything else. And what that suggests is that if you start a one of your universes with birds, you're gonna get a very different outcome than if you start with mammals. Mm. And so, so sometimes you start different places, you get very
0: different evolutionary outcomes. So is that what is that what makes the difference between fate and chance? Is it where you start? That has a lot to it. The more similar you
2: you are at the start, the more likely you are to evolve in the same way. Hmm. And there are plenty of examples of that. Closely related species, when they are placed in similar environments, often evolve in very similar ways. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is that they tend to have the same genes and and the same genetic variations and so since evolution works by natural select since since natural selection works by favoring some variation over others if if two species have the same genetic variants at the outset they're likely to evolve in the same way and so that's one reason that close relatives adapt similarly another reason is that close relatives have very similar lifestyles and so the best solution when faced with a new challenge is likely to be a very similar one.
0: So in the natural world, we have some pretty extreme examples on both sides of the equation. On one hand, we have examples like adaptive radiations that tell us a story of a remarkable level of repeatability when it comes to evolution. On the other side, we have these really interesting scenarios like the platypus, uh, like the birds of, of New Zealand, like. The, the other uh, animals that occur on Australia that are one-off events. We've never seen anything like them before or since. You know, and now where we are you know at, at the forefront of the field is we're trying to ask, how do fate and chance actually intertwine to create what we see in the natural world? How do they interact at different levels of biological organization, right? So when we consider mutations all the way up to aspects of form and function. How do fate and chance play out at each of these levels, you know, to create what we see in the natural world. So even in the case where you see the same features popping up over and over again in order to solve a very specific problem, you know, are those features, are they, do they pop up the same way because the same gene networks are being manipulated in order to create those features? And if they are are the same genes within those networks being manipulated and is it the same mutations in those genes that are being manipulated to lead to these patterns of form and function you know that we see popping up um, over and over again in the natural world so this is a really complex question that we're only now able to approach in depth from the level of individual mutations all the way up to aspects of form and function and this will give us an integrative and in-depth understanding of how fate and chance work together to shape life on earth. And I think that has really important implications, not only for species diversity and com- and, and conservation, but also for our own lives. When we consider the diseases that affect us throughout our lives, when we uh, when we consider the uh the organisms that we depend on for many different functions from you know food production to the plants that generate the oxygen that we breathe all these things considered asking these questions about the role of fate and chance in shaping evolu- evolutionary trajectories has very important implications for for how we live in the world
1: yeah so listening to what Jonathan said uh about the platypus and birds of New Zealand uh would you consider these outliers in a sense yeah so i i think they're
0: definitely remarkable examples of um of one-off events right so i mean there's the platypus is is absolutely one of the most extreme creatures that has ever been produced in terms of form and function you know but in terms of like fate versus chance i mean we see even even amongst twins right so two individuals that have more or less identical genomes we still see that there are are can be a remarkable set of differences but between the two right so even even when you have the most extreme case of similarity right you can still end up with with slight differences
1: oh yeah um and just in the comic book world i guess you have some of these remarkable incidents as well in terms of just the different universes and worlds that you can encounter because You know, oftentimes when you think about the concept of multiverse, uh, a lot of the examples that pop up are these slight tweaks and variations, and then at at times they can be a a little bit more extreme. Uh, I know in the Multiversity uh, Limited series with Grant Morrison, you know, he kind of paints this description of what they're calling Earth-7 as a literal hell world, where it's almost as if the whole universe caught a disease and... You know, I think they described it as stinking like rotten meat. Uh, Earth seven is actually worse than that description is is how they kind of it's like, whoa, what like what could possibly be produced of that or uh, another world where it's so badly um, out of tune. The laws of physics are just like they've been disabled and it's like all of reality has been broken. And, you know, know, just these kind of mind bending concepts of, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of. Uh, the heroes or people or or, or beings otherwise that are are kind of being produced there. Um, And then even just in terms of who lives on the worlds themselves, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there's Earth Prime, where literally there's only one superhero in that universe, and it's Superboy, uh, Superboy Prime, uh, that he's known as in the comic books. Um, And, and, you know, that kind of brings up the question of, you know, is it fate that there was only meant to be one superhero? Is this uh, an example of maybe a, a perfect world because the world hasn't dictated a necessity for more heroes mm-hmm. because of any other problems or things that might be occurring in that universe? Uh, yes. There's a lot of angles to go with it.
0: Yeah, so I, I, re- I really like... You know, you brought up this this idea that like fate seems to be a major driving factor in the comic books. Um, and yeah. even, even in the flash of two worlds, uh, we see... You know, it seems to be pretty fate-driven, right? Given, um, you know, given, given that quote from, uh, from Barry Allen, you know, it seems like you know, there was fated to be a flash in each world. Uh, so I asked Jonathan um, a little bit about you know, his take on the flash of two worlds and how that lines up with our understanding of convergent evolution.
2: I think one of the interesting things about flash of two worlds is the differences between them. Okay. They're, all, they're very similar, but they're not quite the same. Uh-huh. And, and for example, uh, New Flash, Barry Allen, puts on his his outfit by hitting his ring, and out it comes. Whereas Old Flash never figured that out, and so he just wears his, his outfit underneath his regular clothes. <laughs> yep. And Old Flash has a gray hat with little wings coming out of it, and, and New Flash has a red hood over his head. So there are little bits of differences. And we we even see this today, that species that have evolved similarly, we can say, well, they're convergent, they've adapted in the same way, but there are usually little differences that often are the result of of their ancestry, that they evolved in slightly different ways, and we can even see little traces of that, even when they're mostly the same. So, for example, the, the lizards I study, they are, say, the species that evolved to use the twigs. They're very similar looking, but they're not identical. Their patterns are slightly different. Some species are a little bit larger than others. Some have a little spiky crest down the middle of their back. Others don't. So there are some differences between them. Uh, If you looked at them, your first impression would be, these look really similar. But then, oh, but there are a few differences. And so you you can see that today. And and it's usually the case that convergent species, we can tell that they're not identical. Although, not always. In some cases, we thought that they were the same species,
0: and then we realized they weren't. But usually there are some differences. Okay. So it seems like from an evolutionary perspective, all in all, the flash of two worlds, not that far-fetched. Not that far-fetched at all. Besides the speedsters. Hey, give
2: evolution time. Who knows? (laughs) Look at the cheetah, the peregrine falcon.
0: Yeah, so it seems from Jonathan's perspective, you know, the this classic flash of two worlds and a lot of what's happening in the DC multiverse, um isn't that far fetched? It you know it seems like they're they're on point in a, in a lot of aspects of, of of their interpretation.
1: Yeah, I mean he he literally said give evolution some time. Uh, I think Jonathan's <laughs> coming over to to my side of the fence, and uh, you know wouldn't it be interesting? I mean you've got these these great minds in science. Uh, digging into comic books now and i I wonder you know if over the course of the time if we continue to do this uh and and maybe they continue to read comics will there be kind of a a cross pollination of ideas where they're influencing maybe the comic book world and obviously the broader world at at large and maybe they might be inspired by some of the stories they read uh from the comics and it, it might take them in a different direction in their work so uh you know it was really cool chatting with him um and it kind of ties it back to what we were talking about earlier even just on the personal level where you know it's not too hard to imagine yourself taking a slightly different path and you know would that mean you're a completely different person in terms of you know, your size and, and, and your expressions and mannerisms, maybe not, but it, it may have an impact on, you know, the way you, you speak a little bit or how you dress or, or certainly what you do as a profession. And that could be a parallel path and an alternate multiverse representation of you, um, sort of leading a different life. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, and you know, when we, when I first approached this, um, with Jonathan, he mentioned this original idea by Stephen Jay Gould, this, this thought experiment, what, what we call a Gedanken experiment of replaying the tape of evolution. And these sorts of thought experiments, you know, I think one of the points that, you're, that you've made is like, these sorts of thought experiments are, are not only useful for, for science, but they can be useful for, for us personally as well. Like thinking about, well, what if I changed this thing in my life? how could you know what like how could that benefit me or how would that be not so great and using that to you know to to direct you know how we are as human beings um you know every day you know, so obviously this is this is a huge question right it it's something that um you know that i think has implications for pretty much every walk of life um, and, and, I, and this is something that Jonathan has, has thought very deeply about, so much so that he's actually um, he's written a book about this. And um, you know, so I asked him a little bit about, uh, about his book and, um, and the stories therein. So you recently wrote a book. Yes, I did. What is the name of this book? The book is entitled Improbable Destinies.
2: Fate, chance, and the future of evolution. And what is your book about? Well, the book is about just what we've been talking about: the extent to which evolution repeats itself, does the same thing, and time and time again, versus the extent to which evolution goes its own way, one time different from another, so that there's no predictability, no repeated ba- patterns. But as I've just talked about, as we've just discussed, we see both outcomes. So the real question is, why does it do one thing in some t- instances and other in
0: and do other things other times. Phenomenal. There you have it, man. Fate, chance, evolution, philosophy, all wrapped into one. And comic books, of course. Can't forget the comic books. (laughs) So Jonathan's book, Improbable Destinies, Fate, Chance, and the Future of Evolution, is in stores now. You should definitely pick it up, get yourself a copy, uh, I was lucky enough to get an early release version of the book, and I can tell you that it is absolutely phenomenal. Jonathan is a great writer, and he thinks very deeply about this subject. So check it out online. Order it from Amazon or wherever else people get books these days. The bookstore. Yeah. The few that are left, go to it. <laughs> Ask for it there. Well, I think that's all we have um, today, man. I thought this was a, a great exploration of, of science, philosophy, fate, chance, comic book superheroes uh i think you know we did a lot this episode yeah absolutely
1: um you know hope you guys enjoyed it uh if you have any questions or comments or suggestions please share them with us we're more than happy to to take a look and explore different topics but uh it's been a pleasure as always
0: man always a pleasure uh,
1: i'll catch you later man all right signing off see you guys next time peace
0: I hope you enjoyed episode three of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Stay tuned next month when we explore the classic movie and book series, Jurassic Park. I sit down with developmental biologist, Dr. Evan Kingsley. and We talk about how scientists study the biology of ancient creatures beyond what they leave us in their fossils. If you like what you've heard, rate us on Facebook, iTunes, and Stitcher. Send us your questions on Facebook or email us at superheroes at gmail.com. With that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious.